welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ulrike Franke, I'm a policy fellow at ECFR and it is once again my honor to take over this podcast today. Today I'm not taking over because Mark Leonard, the usual host, is away, but rather because I want to talk to him in more detail about an essay that he has written. In order to do that, we don't only have Mark, we also have with us Jana Pulierin, who's the head of ECFR's Berlin office, who I think may challenge Mark on some of his ideas. Now, first of all, what I say are we talking about? Mark wrote an essay called Geopolitical Europe in Times of COVID-19 that was published recently. And I think we should dive right in and see what big solutions Mark has for the future of Europe. So first of all, welcome Mark to your own podcast. And why don't we start with you and your essay? You begin the essay by talking about the twin shocks to Europe's system. Do you want to explain, first of all, what, what that's about? What are the twin shocks? So Europeans have a particular idea of how the world should be organized, which is essentially about the move towards a rule-based order, away from a power-based order, with Europe at its center. And that has been enshrined in the ideology of different European countries. It's been captured by lots of different European security strategies. And that order, that vision was already in quite a lot of trouble before COVID-19 erupted across the world. But I think we can now not avoid facing up to the fact that it is in serious trouble. And as you say, there are two kind of big shocks to that order, neither of which started with COVID, but both of which have become even more obvious as a result of COVID. And the first is, is a philosophical shock, this move away from a world of rules to a, a world of power. And I think for many Europeans, that change maybe started with the Iraq war and has accelerated since then. And COVID in many ways has brought that to the fore where when this horrendous global pandemic erupts across the world, rather than calling a global summit to fix it, rather than investing in the World Health Organization as a solution, what you see from the two most powerful great powers in the world, China and America, is that they use the crisis to, to fight with each other. And America actually withdraws from the World Health Organization, spends its time blaming China. China starts bullying other countries, threatening to withhold medical supplies at a time when their hospitals are filling up and, and their populations are, are terrified and incarcerated in their homes. But that is is just the, the kind of tip of the, the iceberg because mm. it comes after all sorts of assaults on different global institutions from the World Trade Organization to the United Nations, the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris climate deal. So that's the philosophical shock. And then the second shock, which is not as talked about as much, but maybe even more profound from a European perspective, is a geographical one. So we're used to a world where Europe is in the front line of geopolitics. That was obviously the case before the, <laughs> the world wars, when Europeans were basically conquering and plundering different parts of the world through their imperial reach. Then the two world wars were, were above all European wars. And even during the Cold War, where the, the big players were the United States of America and the Soviet Union, the front line, the most important prize was Europe. And as a result of that, everybody was very interested in what Europeans thought, and particularly Americans. They were desperate to keep Europeans on side and to make sure that they consulted them. 
what's obviously happening now is that the central front of geopolitics is no longer in Europe. It's now in the Pacific. It's about the control of of Asia uh, and of the Indo-Pacific. And that is quite a profound shock to the way that Europeans think about themselves. There's a sort of vulgar, relatively trivial part of that, which is complaints from European leaders that they're not getting enough attention from the White House and that they don't get to see the president for very long. But at a more fundamental level, what it means is that Europeans are increasingly not being taken very seriously as as players on different issues, and they're not being consulted, and they are basically seen as as chips which can be traded off against other things. So if you look at the US, they are no longer really talking to Europeans about really important things, even in areas where Europeans are kind of invested, like in Iraq. America's much less invested in all of the the European problems that we're facing, whether it's in Ukraine or... uh, So there's a sort of general lack of importance there. And from the Chinese side as well, the way that the Chinese government has been willing to bully Europeans over relatively trivial issues like the name of their representations in Taiwan and other things like that shows that they don't particularly see Europeans as a kind of powerful actor. Okay, but let me let me come in on this point, because I think this is a really important one, because you are saying, okay, the Europeans are now becoming the chips that can be traded, and there is a lack of importance, which of course sounds really bad. But I'm sure, and I'd love to have Jana's view on this, I'm sure that there are many people in Europe, and I would say in particular in Germany, who may look at the situation and say, you know what, that doesn't sound too bad. That sounds like a situation where we will be left alone, while the Trumps of this world and the Putin and the Xi's and I don't know who else, Erdogan, um, you mentioned in your essay as well, they fight out their geopolitical power wars or conflict. So why isn't this a situation where Europe becomes this giant Switzerland, we will be left alone and everything is great and we maybe can't reform and shape the whole world, but at least we're no longer at the center of all of these conflicts. I think that that might be perception of maybe many German citizens, but I think the political elite in Berlin is actually very worried about this situation, that we become a plaything of, of the great power competition and that we are unable to shape the world around us according to our preferences. And I think what Mark rightly pointed out in this um, essay is how all of this is undermining the very foundations of German foreign policy so far. So our worldview is very much based on the idea of mutual cooperation, multilateral institutions, and we are actually not very well prepared to survive in this kind of world of the jungle. So it is actually for us a, a new situation, and Mark writes that in his essay, that so if you take the system away from us the Germans and from kind of the, the foreign policy framework away from, from German foreign policy, there is not much left. So we don't have a glorious past. We can go back to like the UK or, or the French. And so I think for us, this is actually an existential threat. And we cannot actually, as Germany, we are so dependent also when it comes to our business model, our export-oriented mm. economy. I think we cannot just be bystanders and, and let that happen and watch. But 
we are dependent on rules, on trade, global trade, open doors, a, a rules-based international order. So I think that's actually very threatening. I guess that's what I'm trying to, to get at. Can we kind of, as Europeans, as Germans, ensure that we have the minimum of the international systems as we that we need, which, as you rightly pointed out, has to do with trade, um, but just accept that the rest of it is crumbling? I mean, again, this isn't a good situation. I'm just wondering, and maybe to close on, on that question, Mark, I'm, I'm just wondering whether there is another solution to the one you mentioned in your essay. Is there a solution where we can sit back more and, and let this play out? Like, what's the danger of that, basically? Well, I think the danger is these two trends coming together, because what's happening is you're basically going from a world of rules to a world of power. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the thing which is being weaponized increasingly because people don't want to launch straight into a nuclear war with one another, which is one of the dangers of great power competition in a world of nuclear weapons, is that they are trying to weaponize the international system and the ties that bind them. And that means that increasingly they are launching trade wars, they're introducing tariffs, they're having cyber wars, they're bringing in regulations, which are, are very damaging. And Europeans are finding themselves caught in the middle of that. So they can't, Germans can't just happily carry on trading because their two biggest economic partners are China and America and they're at war with each other. And the Americans are saying, either you go with us or you go with the Chinese. And there are big fights about 5G and whether Huawei gets kicked out of the, the German system or not. And that is very much the first step of a, of a whole series of choices which both the Chinese and the Americans are going to throw our way in the future. And that weaponization of the international system is having enormous implications. German companies are being sanctioned because of their building the Nord Stream pipeline. They are no longer able to trade with Iran. And if you see some of the measures which have been brought in against Nord Stream and against Iran over the nuclear deal by America, extended to, to other areas, particularly extended to our trade with China, you know, the, the cost would be existential for, for big German companies. But at the same time, the other, which is even more kind of worrying if your goal is to be a giant Switzerland, is that the US was the kind of core underpinner of a unipolar European legal and security order. And America shifting its attention from Europe to Asia has created a security vacuum, which is now not being filled with peace and with trade and with understanding between the other powers. But by a re-geopoliticization of Europe and two powers that we previously thought would be integrated into this unipolar European legal order, Russia and Turkey, are now, in fact, using the space which has been accorded to them by America's withdrawal to play all sorts of geopolitical games in the in the region. That obviously has been going on for a long time in Eastern Europe and in the post-Soviet space where we've had wars in Georgia and in Ukraine. But increasingly, we're seeing it happen in our southern neighborhood as well. And the war in Syria has generated hundreds of thousands of refugees who went to Germany. But the, the battles on the ground and the peace deals and the, the peace negotiations haven't been led by Europeans or Americans. In fact, it's the, the Russians and the Turks who are the most active players. And the same thing's happening in Libya now as well. So what we're finding is that rather than having a kind of peaceful and orderly Europe, We're seeing a much more chaotic and multipolar Europe where geopolitics is returning. And we're on the front line of those battles, which make it much harder to be Switzerland. And the final mm -hmm. 
part of this picture, actually, is that the US, which was the biggest champion for, for rules and for order in our part of the world, now finds that the rules and orders which were developed when Europe was at the center of the world are actually a constraint because they're no longer facing the Soviet Union because these rules constrained America and Russia, but they didn't actually make any demands on China. So the US now, as well as wanting to repoliticize the global stage, is starting to unpick a lot of the architecture of European security, all of the arms control deals, because they feel that they put the US at a disadvantage in its competition with China. So these two orders, the global order and the European order, which in our minds were mutually re self-reinforcing, are now actually in conflict with each other. And instead of having allies who are helping us deal with it and the peaceful world that you're talking about, we have now a quadrangle of chaos with China and America and Turkey and Russia all undermining the, the order which we've come to rely on. I was just about to quote the quadrangle of chaos that, that you have in the essay and of the US, China, Russia and Turkey, who you also call systemic disruptors. And there are lots of these, you know, pretty cool buzzwords in the essay. So I recommend everyone reading it for that and for the general idea, of course. While I agree with kind of his pessimism overall, I want to inject some optimism into that debate here, because I think while the direction that the US has taken under the Trump presidency is very much uh, in accordance to what Mark has just said, we should not underestimate that in case of a Biden presidency, Biden has said that he was willing to return to multilateralism, that he was very ready and willing to work with partners and allies, that he said the US would be back at the table and engage in not only a new transatlantic kind of realignment, but also that um, he, he was really willing to also work through institutions. He said that he wants to extend new start. He wants to renew the nuclear deal with Iran. He wants to rejoin the Paris Agreement. So I think uh, we should not make the mistake to take a kind of everything that we have seen under Trump as the new normal for American foreign policy. Of course, this is still an open race. It's by no ways clear that Biden will win this, but we should not uh, kind of abandon uh, the idea that the US can be somewhat back as also an advocate for, for multilateralism. That's the one thing I wanted to say. And the other thing that I think we should not forget that, I mean, not all is lost. It is, I think, still possible to hold up some of the rules and to preserve some of the kind of international regimes and institutions. And the Europeans actually play a crucial role here. So I think, yeah, we see all this shift toward nationalism and unilateralism. And, but this is also an opportunity for the EU because it can actually uh, turn into uh, kind of the champion of multilateralism and turn its supposed weakness into a virtue. And I mean, it needs to manage the challenge, but if it singles itself out as the champion of the rules-based international order, it is also a very attractive partner for other like-minded actors like Japan or Australia or Canada or other middle-sized So, I mean, I'm not an optimist by nature, but I think we should <laughs> not be too pessimistic about all of that. I want to come to, to the kind of German solution in one second, but I think you make a very important point about the US. So, Mark, it seems to me that in what you're saying, in what you're writing, it almost sounds as if you're saying, well, the US is 
lost. So at one point you speak about Europe being forced to choose between upholding existing norms and the relationship to the US. So what about Jana's point about the Biden election or, or you know any other president coming to power? Do you think that the US has definitely and and for the foreseeable future abandoned this international system that you described or do you think they can come back and if they do can they help Europe rebuild the, the system in a way that, that works for, for us? So I am crossing every finger in my body for Biden victory. Unlike Jana, I am naturally an optimist and I'm also <laughs> a kind of deep Atlanticist. However, what I think is happening now is a mix within the US of the particular kind of weird pathologies of Donald Trump, which will obviously hopefully not be with us forever and some big structural changes which are going on in the world, which do have profound implications for, for, for Europe and which will be there whoever is president. You know, on the one hand, I completely share Yana's belief that Biden's instincts will be completely different from Trump's. When we've spoken to people uh, around Biden, including on this podcast, we've heard about how Joe Biden will try and, and return to the Paris climate deal, is likely to uh, go back to diplomacy in terms of dealing with the Iran nuclear deal, will seek out allies in the world. But from a European perspective, two big things have happened which are really structural and which go way beyond any president. One is that the Cold War is over and we won. And therefore, from an American perspective, the European problem and the European file has been solved. And that's why every single president for the last 30 years has been saying that Europeans need to take more responsibility for Europe and that America is going to be less and less involved. And every time there's been a crisis, we've seen less America involved. In the Cold War, the US was very much on the front line with us. In the Balkans, there were wars. They were the necessary solution in Dayton, in Kosovo. They supplied most of the kind of firepower. In Georgia, it was largely rhetorical uh, support that we got. And in Ukraine and on Libya, they pushed Europeans into the front line and were happy at best to lead from behind. And now under Trump, they've been missing in action on most of the European files. So there is a kind of natural sucking sound as American attention moves out of Europe and increasingly out of the Middle East towards the, the growing competition which they're going to have with China in Asia. And I think that's the second structural change, which is that if we go back 30 years to the end of the Cold War, the US had what was seen by many as a unipolar moment. And now it has a peer competitor in China. And that does mean that it thinks very differently about rules. Because if you have uh, a single power that can make the rules in the world, that power is going to very much believe in a rule-based order. If you have multiple powers that want to make the rules, then you become less enthusiastic about it. And that is what's leading, I think, to, to a refragmentation of the world. And it's why America and China are decoupling, because Americans don't want to live by rules made by China, and China increasingly wants to insulate itself from American rules. And that is going to lead to a different kind of model of global order, and one which is very uncomfortable for Europeans. So much as I hope that Joe Biden's in the White House and totally convinced as I am that he will be much easier to deal with with Europeans on lots of levels. This structural change does mean that the way that Europeans have thought about their security and their economic future 
is going to need to change. And I am I'm quite optimistic. I got lots of ideas about what we need to do. But before we can get to a stage where we can cope with that world, and part of coping with that world, I hope we'll be reinventing the transatlantic relationship and having a much deeper relationship with under a Biden administration. But we, we need to accept that our dream of order, which we developed after 1989, is now being overturned as in in tatters. And we need to rethink how we deal with the world, uh, both at an intellectual level, a diplomatic level, but also we need to retool our our institutions for this world where globalization is being weaponized. Mm-hmm. I totally, I totally agree with Mark. Um, but the one big difference with the Biden administration would be that Europeans would be seen as allies in the geopolitical competition with China and Russia, and not as foes that want to rip off kind of America. And I think that would make a difference because it would make it easier also for the Europeans to, together with the Americans, to to compete in that international battle that we are that we are seeing. Let's spend the last minutes of this podcast talk about or zoom into Germany in particular, because Jana, you've already talked about the kind of pressure that is on Germany in this new world and the thinking that we're currently hearing out of out of Berlin. And Mark, your or at least part of your answer of all of this problem really seems to be based on German exceptionalism more than a return to normality, which is something that we have discussed in Germany, well, ever since I've been alive, I think. Do you want to tell us, Mark, like what, to what extent is German exceptionalism actually more helpful for Europe? And how could Germany help Europe reinvent its, uh, itself? So I'm now going to tell you why Germany's the answer and, and my, you two probably as the other two Germans in the call, but longer standing Germans than me will probably tell me why Germany's the biggest problem. But basically throughout my adult life, I've been watching debates in Germany about becoming a normal power. And uh, there was always a, a huge inferiority complex amongst the German foreign policy community vis-a-vis the United States and France and the United Kingdom. And I remember the debates about the wars in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya. And there was a lot of frustration amongst German policymakers that Germany couldn't just behave in the way these so-called normal powers were were acting. Mm -hmm. Where I suppose I'm starting from now is that, as, as Jana said, the world that we've entered is a world which is enormously difficult and troubling for Germany because it's built its economic revival, its return to international respectability, and its power around this vision of a kind of open trading system, a rule-based order, an alliance with the US. And therefore, it's very painful to face up to what's going on in the world. But if Germany manages to do this, it could potentially find that its peculiar institutions, economic base, and other things are actually more suited to this world than so-called normal powers are. We've seen the limits of American, British, and French foreign policy rather dramatically in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the war on terror, which France has been fighting in different African countries where it's tended to create more terrorists than it's removed. And if I'm right, that in the future, the biggest battlegrounds for this geopolitical competition are going to be economic. It's going to be about 
regulation and is going to be about trade wars and tariffs and technology wars and regulatory wars and data wars and interfering in other people's elections, basically manipulating the architecture of globalization, then Germany has an enormous amount to contribute to that because it is, you know, this enormously powerful economic engine. It creates a lot of products that different people want to use. It has relationships with countries all over the world. And as a result, can potentially have a lot of impact on how other countries see things. And we've seen that in European foreign policy recently, where Germany's played a critical role in our relationship with Russia, where it's been pushing sanctions. And that's been one of the big deterrents for for Putin to stop his engagements in Ukraine and not to open new fronts. On Turkey, it's Germany that pushed for the, the refugee deal and reinvented the relationship with Turkey. And when there were bilateral problems with Turkey, Germany changed its travel advice and tried to bully the Turks into releasing prisoners rather successfully because by using its economic clout. In that sense, I sort of argue in the essay that rather than obsessing about whether Germany spends 2% or not, I'm not against Germany spending 2% on defense. A much bigger prize is working out how to use the other 98% of, of the German economy and to, to put that behind these sort of strategic goals. So I think that's one way that German exceptionalism can be useful. I think some of the other ways are also thinking about what kinds of diplomacy we need in this world. So if you think about this new European security order where Turkey and Russia are much more problematic, Germany, I think, is in quite a good position to both bring Europeans together. It doesn't have enormous amount of credibility in all Eastern European countries, but it has more credibility than, than France does, certainly as a kind of defender of, uh, of the security of, of Eastern Europeans. So it can potentially reach out to them, but also it has this sort of track record of Ostpolitik and has an ability of thinking about how you marry deterrence with dialogue in your relations with different areas. And I think that is going to be important if we want to create less instability in our region to find new ways of marrying kind of tough actions with sticks with and dialogue with both Russia and Turkey, who are the, the sort of two players uh, around us. While I agree with all of that, I think you are underestimating kind of the role that military power still plays. I agree with you that the, the new battlegrounds technology and um, weaponizing the economy and all of this, but I think military power is far from being obsolete. So you see how successful the use of force has been in Syria and Libya. I mean, unfortunately, uh, from our perspective, but from the Turkish and the Russian perspective, their military engagement has been very effective. It has been uh, changing facts on the ground to their advantage. And also, I think we face a huge question about strategic stability in Europe post the INF Treaty. We have the security gap vis-a-vis -vis the Russian intermediate range missiles. And these are all questions that are still very much on the table. So they are not obsolete. And therefore, I think I mean, and, and you write this actually in, in your paper, is that Germany has also a special responsibility here and we cannot let it easily off the hook. We have to push Germany also on that front. We can discuss at length about the 2%, but, but the fact that Germany is underperforming also militarily is, I think, very striking. And if Germany wants to keep the EU together and compensate for some of the US absence in Europe, it needs to really kind of invest heavily in 
conventional deterrence and and in in NATO. So I think um, it's just worth mentioning that's here on the podcast and it's in the paper. And the second point I, I want to make is that Germany is this economic giant and can use its economic power. But at the other hand, there is this argument that Germany's strength comes from the fact that it has not been politicizing its economic power, that it has been mm -hmm. advocating global trade and open doors and it has avoided to weaponize its economy so far. So some people have argued that it's kind of precisely counterproductive to weaponize Germany's economy because it would undermine its very business model. And I just wanted to finally challenge Mark to, to kind of comment on that point. Yeah, so basically you're, you're saying, can you keep or can Germany keep its exceptionalism that, that Mark wants to use if indeed it is using it in the way that Mark is, is trying to do? I think we're coming to the end. So I don't know whether Mark wants to have a final point, but I'm very happy, I have to say, to end with uh, Jana's underlining of the importance of military power, which I would support. And I think this may have been the first time in the last 70 years or so that you had two Germans make um, supporting military power versus one Brit who says it's not quite as important anymore. So that's a first in a way. Well, maybe it's because I'm also German that I'm, uh, I'm downgrading <laughs> the importance of military power. <laughs> that could be it. Thank you very much to the to the two of you. I think the only thing that we have left now on this podcast is uh, the bookshelf segment. So Mark, what is on your bookshelf? I've been reading a book called Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI, which is edited by John Brockman, which is a great little collection of cameo interviews with some of the, the big thinkers about artificial intelligence, both uh, scientists and technologists, but also philosophers, artists, other kinds of people. And uh, it's a, a really interesting window into a set of technologies which could change the world, could even end humanity, if you believe some of the, the more gloomy predictions in this uh, in this book. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good uh, book recommendation. Jana and I have the same recommendation, and she had to leave to be on another panel because, you know, ECFR fellows and, and ECFR experts, and especially our German experts, are in, in high demand these days. And the Well, report really that we wanted to recommend is a new report that just came out, I think last year, published by the Munich Security Conference. And it's a special edition of the Munich Security Report on German foreign and security policy. Um, it's called Zeitenwende. So very much in line with the topic of this, this podcast, the changing times. And it looks in depth on Germany, has interesting polling numbers, these kind of things. So, um, highly recommended in general. And of course, also in addition to this podcast and in addition to the essay that we have been discussing here which again is called Geopolitical Europe in Times of COVID-19, written by our own Mark Leonard. This brings me to the end of our podcast. If you have enjoyed listening to the podcast, please rank us highly on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere that helps others to find this podcast. And we will, of course, put the link to the publication and everything else we mentioned on our website. But for now, from Mark Leonard, Jana Pulierin and myself, it is goodbye. And next week, Mark will be back as your usual host. The editor of this week's podcast is Marlene Rieben.